Ladies and gentlemen, UFC 263 is finally here. You know, all the Israel Adesanya fanboys are ready to go. I mean, I'm quite excited for it. I mean, this is kind of the new generation of MMA, and Israel Adesanya is the leader. And so, you know, in terms of pick them for the last couple of weeks, we've been really feeling ourselves. And, you know, we've, we've just been making some really great changes uh, since the uh, little hiatus from the UFC. So once again, thank you everybody for the support. I love breaking down the fights. It looks like we're finding some success. Just overall, as always, hashtag for the love of the arts. But, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna rock this beautiful hat moving forward for all the recordings, you know, keep that luck and the good vibes going. I think that, you know, our record over the last little while is pretty much coming from a good vibe all around. And if you've been following along, I really appreciate it. You know, appreciate the shares, the likes, the following, all that kind of fun stuff. So if you can keep that going for me, that would be great. Outside of that, man, you know, great card last week. And I think it culminated perfectly into where we believe Jerzino Rosenstrike should be. I think that Augustus Sakai fight was, was one where people were giving a lot of credit to Augustus Sakai for being able to you know, really withstand some of the damage that Jerzino can throw and that he was kind of trigger, you know, shy. But when you go look at the Nagano fight and the head movement, things like that, that I broke down in the last video, I mean, let's be real, the guy's an elite striker. And I think that that showed in what is usually a brawler. I mean, the only guy we really see him do those kinds of things to Marcin Tybura, who also fought on that card and had a great showing against Walt Harris. But all in all, I think that was one of the more easier predictable fights when you break down how they fight because even the overeem showing when he was able to end him in the fifth round i think that even if that went a while it's like the durability is there but you know rosen strikes a smart fighter and i think that he showed that very quickly in that fight against augustus sakai he's really now you know trajectory wise looking like a new contender coming into that top five or so so i'm excited to see what he can do biggie boys uh a personal favorite of mine, like a lot of fighters, I guess, right? But it's going to be a fun one for him. And I think that that card overall was just such a great show. You know, the first two fights that we did kind of not have wins on the pick em, we broke them down very well. Sean Woodson, I mean, the striking was there. He was able to start finding ways to defend those takedowns. And I think that that's what proved just how good he was. When it comes to the all-around all MMA stuff, right? That's what we want to see from Sean. And that's where I think that he had so much success and all the power to him. We go into another guy like Poyas, I mean... Jordan Levitt, we were pretty high on him. Everyone was coming in as a minus 200, a favorite. But Poyas, we broke him down, right? If this guy can ride out the fights, especially in that first round, the guy's used to getting beaten up and just locking people into things to come third round. And when you look at that fight, maybe there wasn't so much action from like a BJJ submission standpoint, but at the same time, it was absolutely beautiful to see these guys try to work. I think the flow of the fight might not be what some of the, you know, newer fans, I don't like the word casual much anymore, but the newer fans might not appreciate, but a guy like me, you know, who gets yelled at by his wife when, you know, his hands are down his pants when he's watching Ronaldo Susan, you know, Damien Maya grappling match, that's the kind of guy I am. So I didn't mind that fight at all. I thought it was fun. Talk about fun. We got a crazy card coming up. And I mean, even with Matt Frivola losing, you know, uh, Frank Camacho to a, to a car accident, you know, all prayers and well wishes and thoughts to him and his family for, for a speedy recovery. But we just got Terrence McKinney on, on the main, on the, on the USA 263 card. That's pretty incredible. And we're going to get into so much detail. So stay tuned for that. As always, subscribe, like, hit that bell for notifications. We're doing big things over here and we're going to keep it rolling. So with that said, let's just get right into that first fight, right? Heavyweight boys, Carlos Filipe and Jake Collier. So for me, I kind of want to talk about the good and bad about Collier first, because when you fight a guy like Tom Aspinall, there's going to, 
you're going to see the difference in speed sometimes depending on who you are, right? And so in that fight, you really noticed the, the speed differential between Aspinall and Collier. And I think that that played a huge part in how well he was able to use his striking. Because when you think about how he's come back from that fight, it's been absolutely phenomenal, right? Gian Vellante, that's a guy who started middleweight just like Collier and now finds himself at heavyweight. And in terms of athletic performance, being able to you know use his cardio to really get that fight laid and keep the output going, Collier was the much, much, much better fighter. He's able to use his jab and leg kicks to set things up. He had a few head kick shots in there, and I think that's where you really got to give him credit, right? He's showing that bit of athleticism that he might have had at 185. You know, crazy good body shots. And I think that I really enjoy the fact that he keeps bringing the pressure, right? He landed 123 of 272 significant strikes in a heavyweight fight. That's really good performance, if you ask me. And, you know, I think that in this one, the one area he's going to have to watch out for is that, like, boxing and, and, and brawling range. Because if you want to talk about that Tafa and, and Felipe fight, which is probably one of my favorite fights of the last year or so, it, it was absolutely phenomenal, right? That third round of just head-to-head -head and just throwing bombs. I don't think Collier wants to fight himself in those positions, right? That's where I think that Felipe, who's constantly working on his boxing, is getting better and better and better. And for me, I'm thinking leg kicks, long jabs, head kicks if you can. You know, you want to keep that distance from, from Felipe because I think that that's where he's going to have success because it's where he's had success in most of his UFC career so far. You even want to talk about the Spivak fight, right? I don't think he was able to find that range. I think that Spivak was so smart in the boxing which just keep his hands up and defend as much as he could. And then he rode him out into that third round. And when he was able to start getting those takedowns going, he basically stole the fight right there. And that's the that's the little things you want to see from Philippe to avoid because he's such an exciting fighter, but at the same time being able to get yourself back to your feet because that's where you want the fight to go is going to be really important for some of the guys that might want to take him down. Now, Jake Collier, if we consider his last few fights, I don't see that happening. I think these boys are going to try to go for that 50K bonus. I think that they will throw bombs. And for me, it's almost like, where can they find the most success? If I'm Collier, it's going to be leg kicks, body shots, you know, setting those kinds of things up with a long jab. Don't get too close to him. That's simple. For Felipe, it's kind of the opposite, right? Beat those leg kicks, catch him if you can, and get in real close and start filling that body. I think you can slow down Collier, which is going to allow him to really start chasing and hammering home that box that he's so good at. For me, that's where I'm actually like really interested to see where this fight goes because Collier is going to have such a little advantage as being that middleweight turned heavyweight, you know, won an RFA title as a middleweight, for example. That's where the underrated athleticism for Collier comes from is that he spent most of his time in his young MMA career fighting at, you know, 185 and now gets to come in at whatever weight he wants up to 265. So those are the little things that I'm really enjoying about both these guys. I mean, if I'm getting another Taf of Felipe type fight in this, everyone's going to be quite happy with how this card kicks off. So for me, I do have to think that Felipe is going to get the edge here. I think that his ability to improve as a boxer is there. I think that Collier as a fighter, we don't see him use too much of the grappling and wrestling in his own fights, even when he's taking on guys like Aspinall, who is just using footwork and pure, just really beautiful boxing, just completely outstrike him and outpace him. So that's where I think these guys are really going to have some fun when it comes to the standing give him a little bit of an edge on the kicks and things like that. But overall, I still have to give that slight edge to Felipe. So as always, let's take a quick look at what Vegas has to say about this. And Carlos Felipe opened it as a minus 200, which I very much agree with in Collier coming in at a plus 170. And you know what? It's dropping a bit. We got Carlos Felipe coming in at minus 170, minus 180 or so in that range. And then Collier actually dropping almost 30 points to that plus 140, plus 145 range. So 
depending on how you feel about this fight, right? I think that there's going to be hype on Felipe's side, so I'm not trying to take anything away from Collier at this point. I think that the way Felipe fights, the way fans enjoy MMA at this point, it's it, he's just going to get a lot of the backing regardless. Now, I'm still giving him the, the points on the skill side because I think that without a threat of a takedown if he can keep this fight standing i, I do think that he, he's just the better overall boxer but again in terms of mma striking incorporating the kickboxing hitting all three levels i think collier's really really good at that and to be able to have an output of over 250 punches in three rounds as a heavyweight is a big deal so ladies and gentlemen get excited for this fight because i think these guys are gonna absolutely go nuts and chin wise i can see these guys having quite a bit of fun depending on how you know powerful they are in the, in, in the seconds and third rounds after kind of feeding each other in the face for that first round so get excited for that one i think it's going to be absolutely insane and we're going to get into it the next one right away i mean lightweight bout Fresiam and luigi vendramini so interesting story with vendramini right like such a good striker i mean you look at the way he took off in his ufc career i mean just fighting such good fighters right i mean the zaleski loss I mean, I thought on a good day, he could have he could have actually had a, a much better showing. You know, I think Zaleski's a beast for anybody. I actually thought he beat Muslim Salakov in that fight. And, you know, when you think about it, highlight real finish, but based on what? I mean, I think Vendramini suffered uh, two torn ligaments in his knee in that fight. And to be honest, you could see the moment he threw that kick, he kind of buckled a bit. He didn't look injured, stuff like, but he was slowing down. He wasn't able to throw much anymore. And Zaleski read that like a book. And the moment he found that opportunity to try and land that flying knee into the fence, it just landed absolutely spot on. And it was a clean, clean, clean finish. Now, for me, you look at some of the things that we take away from that fight before the knee, you know, he was actually locked up in a pretty tight Peruvian necktie, but got out and even found a way to get some more, you know, offensive positions on Zaleski in that fight. And for the way Zaleski fights, you know, athletic, and especially in that first two rounds, just so crazy with what all he can do. I think that was a beautiful showing for him. And, you know, not letting go of so many combos was such an important part for him. And I think that against um, Ayari, that, the, the Justin Ayari fight was was a really good re-coming out party for him. You know, I think that that was a fight where he didn't have to take on such a huge bet. And it was one of those things where I felt like Ayari was kind of the counterpuncher waiting for Vendramini to kind of come to him. And he was trying to use a lot of feints to pull Vendramini. And Vendramini was like, nah, bro, I'm fighting. And slowly but surely, he was just landing combos after combos, pushed it up to the against fence. And go check out that head kick the range he basically lands a head kick shin to head in boxing range it was absolutely gorgeous go check that fighter if you haven't 100 would get you pumped up to watch luigi fight and i think that's where you're kind of seeing most of the fan for fight fanfare for benjamin coming from because frankly even in the zaleski fight you have to tell yourself like if he didn't get those two torn ligaments in his knee after that kick how would that fight have gone? I think he's hella exciting. I think that he's dangerous in a lot of places. And frankly, he's, he's a pretty good scrambler too. So all of those things, the athleticism, the ability to kick and push forward, have such good striking. I think that's what makes him such, you know, under the radar fan favorite for some of the diehards. And then, you know, going into Freziam, you know, he got the Don Madge fight on a short notice debut. And I think in that fight, you know, as much as we love to say the French kickboxers, right? He actually showcased some good defense in terms of the takedowns, you know, he stuffed nine of 12, but as the fight wore on, you can tell that maybe it was a short notice fight combined with the aspects of, you know, 
having to get yourself off the ground so much or even fight in the clinch to just avoid the takedown. That all adds up, right? Everybody always says it. That clinch work, the pummeling, it's some of the most grueling work in all of MMA. And, and he spent a lot of time in there. And for it to be his first fight, short notice, I mean, he did fairly well. And I think outside of that, you know, we, we saw the skills that he does bring, but also the holes that he needs to work on moving forward, especially a guy with a guy like Don Madge. Because for me, I just really noticed that he threw just those six significant strikes in the third round and landed none of them. And for me, it was one of those things where if he was able to kind of keep it on the feet, full camp, better wrestling, all that kind of stuff, he would have had a pretty good chance of really securing what could have been a close victory, if not a much closer loss, which is still, I think in this case, a learning experience altogether. Now, in this fight, a little bit more of an athlete, a little bit more of an all-around MMA fighter who's going to be coming and throwing kicks. So, you know, we just talked about some guys who are going to be throwing some really big bows. And I mean, look at these guys, right? Like these guys are going to be athletic as hell. They're going to be fast and they're really good kickboxers. Because for me, the volume is so good. I think that the accuracy is there. And, you know, even if you talk about the Malarkey fight, which was the follow-up fight, I mean, it was so obvious that he made great strides in his wrestling and clinch game. I think that that was something that we really took away. And outside of that, you know, I really want to say if he can avoid some of those takedowns against, you know, if he does, I think if Fendramini is, you know, game plan wise, he's already pretty confident on the feet and knows he can stand. But Frezium is showing a bit of signs that where if you keep forcing those clinch games and the pummeling and all that, it becomes a bit easier to deal with in the second and third round. So if I'm Ben Dramini, I'm definitely looking for those little bit of areas where I can, you know, excel and carry the fight into later rounds if I can't get that finish. For ZM, it's use the kickboxing, use the footwork. Vendramini is not afraid to take those punches. He is not biting on many of those fates. So you got to be strategic. You got to pick your shots. And again, use the footwork, use the ability. If he's coming for takedowns, throw some knees up there. That's where I want to see ZM have a bit more success. You know, he's not taking on the Don Madges and the uh, Jamie Malarkeys of the world now. So this should be a fight where he can at least manage the cardio and also showcase a bit of that striking more as opposed to just keep getting taken down as he was in those last couple of fights. So for me, I think this is going to be one of the more exciting fights ac across the board because they're such good strikers, and that's what people kind of look for here. And the threat of Vendramini's ability to take it to the ground and maybe finish with even a submission, that all exists. So for me, I think that this is Vendramini's fight to lose only because you know you look at his experience, right? I just think guys like Zaleski, with who Zaleski's you know, been fighting over the last year, that's really, really good experience that you can take away. And like I said, if it wasn't for that knee, who knows how that fight would have gone. So let's take a quick look here at the lines. I'm pretty excited to see what this one looks like because like I said, I do lean uh, Vendramini on this one only because it, it's tough to give ZM a lot more credit after what we've seen. So let's see what we're looking at. And I mean, pretty much opened as an even pick -em. And ZM's actually now looking as a much bigger favorite. And I think that that does come from, you know, did he learn a lot more of that wrestling defense? Because if he did, the striking's there. He's incredibly athletic. If he can manage that cardio, he has a chance at winning here in a big way. But I think Luigi Vandermini is being written off here, even as a plus 110, plus 115 underdog. I think that he has a really good shot here. I think that if he can avoid any major like hip injuries and, and not have any of those like really freak accidents happen, he's such a threat to take away a big W in this one. And like we said, man, I think he has that option to attack in multiple areas. Whereas ZM could be maybe the better kickboxer overall, 
I still think that Vendramini brings a lot to the table. Another Italian to look out for. Obviously, Brazilian in heritage, but, I mean, let's not beat around the bush with that name. Uh, I, come on. There's nothing much more to say about these two guys. I think that it's a big-time finisher uh, against the guy who, who seems to be very, very game to take the fight anywhere defensively. And so with that, it's going to be just a huge slobber knocker of guys going back and forth. Should be fun. We'll be interested to see where those scrambles go because I think that's where Benjamini could showcase a bit more of that MMA experience. But all in all, man, one of the most fun fights on the card and definitely underrated. Now, going into what would be considered underrated, let's talk about Steven Peterson and Chase Hooper, right? Chase Hooper is known as that big-time BJJ guy, waits it out, waits it out, waits it out for his opportunity, then bang! gets that finish, right? You talk about that Peter Barrett fight. I mean, that's a fight where we actually saw him find a bit more success on the feet as opposed to maybe the Caceres fight where Caceres is such a better ground fighter than maybe Barrett is. And there's a few things you take away from the Chase Hooper fight, right? He's becoming a pretty good kicker, but the hands come down. But when he's boxing, he seems to keep the hands up. He's very disciplined there. So it's kind of like finding that balance of, you know, when you're kickboxing, you know, try to keep those hands up too, because those openings are going to be massive for some of the bigger strikers. And when you think about how good of a, you know, durable fighter that Chase Hooper has been, you still don't want to see him take too much damage because it slows him down. I think that was the big thing in some of the other fights. And he's just constantly, constantly pushing to find areas to get that takedown. Now, that finish of Peter Barrett was absolutely beautiful, right? It, it just the perfect Chase Hooper type of fight. Now, in this one, I think that Peterson's going to be a lot better of a grappler than Barrett. And on top of that, we're seeing him improve absolutely amazingly when it comes to the striking game. I think that the finish of Martin Bravo, I mean, that spinning back face, I mean, I, if that didn't put him on the map, what can, right? I think that was one of the more better fights that we saw him. He even mentioned before that fight how he's continuously just trying to get better as a striker. And I don't think it's just for the excitement aspects. I think all fights start standing. And frankly, he's shown such good grappling in the past. And with that striking coming into play now, I think he just has a really good opportunity here to play, you know, spoiler. I think that Chase Hooper should be a favorite, primarily because of, you know, some of the hype that that's coming. But again, for me, where do I like the improvements for Chase Hooper? The spinning kicks, the body kicks. I, I just find that he's adding a lot more to his arsenal to not only keep strikers at bay, but get them tired, get them, you know, a bit slower on their feet with especially those leg kicks and then try to get it to the ground. For me, that's a really, really smart game plan for him against anybody because, you know, that's kind of, he's going to rely on that BJJ game for the rest of his career and finding ways to differentiate how to, keep these big boys at bay that want to just knock you out and have probably better striking than you on paper it, it's a really smart game plan he's improving that jab right so it's a lot of strikes that you're seeing to keep guys at bay i don't think he's trying to get in close and start throwing crazy bows at people it's just not it's not smart and i think that's where we're going to see chase super develop as a overall mma fighter and i'm excited to see that and now i think he's finally getting that true i think caceres was a way tougher test than you know the ufc probably didn't expect that to be so so tough for him but because Harris is such a such good experienced fighter despite his age and all of that culminated into a big upset win. And now you got a guy like, you know, Peterson, who's a massive regional journeyman, had so much success, you know, back and forth across the U.S. And I think that that's where, you know, coming back from that arm injury and having so much time off to get, you know, more acclimated to this new age of MMA where the striking is so important. Even just being an exciting fighter is so important. You know, he's looking the part. And I think that's where when you consider just playing spoiler, Alan Cruz and Sungwoo Choi were his previous opponents, be opponents before getting those fights getting canceled, and now he takes on Chase Hooper. So, put that all in perspective, right? Alan Cruz is a striker, Sungwoo Choi is a striker, and now Chase Hooper. 
So if you're prepping for those two types of fighters and now getting Chase Super, I'm sorry to say, but there's a there's a there's levels to this, especially in that striking game. And I think Alan Cruz and Sung Woo Choi would have been some very, very difficult competitors when it comes to the striking game. Now he's getting a bit more of that all-rounder where he might even have the upper hand in the striking and should have an opportunity to showcase how well he can defend some of the takedowns, maybe even some of the submissions because of where his career was early on. And that's what makes this one so exciting, right? For me, Hooper just needs to keep those hands up, get those kicks in there. I think that with that huge opening happening, that's that's one of those areas that he has to avoid. You know, the durability is there, but who wants to see a 22-year-old kid just get beat up for three rounds till he finds a way to get the fight to the ground? It's just not good MMA. And I think for me, it's one of those things where I think that he's doing all the right things to incorporate a strategic plan overall, no matter who he fights, because then he can start getting into game plans fighter specific. But right now, with being such a heavy BJJ fighter, those distance strikes, the jabs, the kicks to the body, spinning kicks, like these are all things that he can start utilizing and getting better at to become a more complete MMA fighter with, with a really good background in trying to execute his game plan. So let's take a look here and unsurprisingly man chase hooper I, I i'm surprised that the lines even dropped like this but steven peterson came in as a minus 180 favorite with chase coming in at plus 155 dog and this is actually moving very close to a pick em. steven peterson's now coming in at minus 125 with chase hooper averaging at about minus 105 so if I'm seeing Steven Peterson come down to pick him or even dog money, I mean, if you're the gambling person that, you know, some of this show does revolve around, look into that. Because that's something where I'd be very curious to see how well Chase can do when Steven Peterson is fully energetic and really testing the striking game with the ability to say, oh, take me to the ground. I'm happy to show you what I can do too. Because that's the mentality I can almost assume Peterson's going in with. So for me, Look out for that one. I think it's going to be one of those, you know, fanfare upsets, if you will, where everyone's really hoping to see Chase Hooper just rise and shine, just like his boy, uh, Sean O'Malley. But I think this is the case where, you know, Ben Askren's son could have his hands full with, with a very tough and gritty opponent. This next fight, man, this one's got me really pumped up. You know, we were supposed to see Frank Camacho against Matt Frivola. Unfortunately, Frank had to pull out because of a car accident. So we wish him nothing but a speedy recovery and nothing but the best wishes for him and his family. But replacing Frank Camacho is Terrence McKinney. Now, McKinney is a big name coming out of LFA this year. He's had such a massive 2021, but I want to take it back a little bit. You know, we hear all the time about these celebrity come up stories and these athlete come up stories, you know, they seem to be a dime a dozen, but then there's certain ones that just stick to you like glue. And Terrence McKinney has one of the tougher ones you'll ever hear. You know, we're going to take it way back right now. You know, at 16 years old, his mom was raped and nine months later out came Terrence with an umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. Talk about resilience from the start, right? Then they move to Germany where he starts to get made fun of for just being too small. Can you believe that? Then they moved to a small town outside Spokane, Washington, where he's now getting made fun of for being black. You know, the kid can't win. And this is a kid we're talking about still. You know, he gets into wrestling to kind of have his own little outlet, get into sports. And I think that really, really ended up being where he found himself as a person. He was able to compete at the college levels. You know, things obviously start to go a little awry in later parts of his life. But, you know, his mom actually goes on record saying, you know, she was quite happy about the fact that he was into wrestling because she could barely even feed the kid and him having to cut weight prevented her from having to buy so much food for them. So that's a crazy story to even kick off. You know, we're talking about a teenager at this point. And now, you know, 
training out his Sikh Jitsu. He's got big names like, you know, Michael Kiez in his corner that are backing him up. And you talk about his come up, right? Such a good wrestler, finding ways to, you know, make a difference in the world for him and his family. And all of a sudden, you know, the hallucinogen story, being on drugs, getting tased twice, beating death twice in the ambulance. And he says that that experience changed his life completely. He started taking things more seriously. He's now training in MMA big time. And it doesn't even stop there. By his fifth pro fight, this guy snaps his tibia in the fight. Same injury as Chris Weidman, same injury as Anderson Silva. This kid went through it too. So coming back from that injury now, you know, you look at his record and the fact that his only two big losses, you know, for the last little while are Derek Minner and Sean Woodson, two guys who have made a pretty big splash in the UFC over the last year. Like the kid really is built different. And you don't want to use that term loosely, but this kid is built different. And now you look at the year he's had in 2021 with LFA, right? You talk about that head kick of Gavino, and it's like, just wow, just ends him, right? Clean. Then he comes up with a big win uh, via ground and pound in guard. You know, it's incredible. The kid's fought three times. He's only been in the cage for a minute and 45 seconds. And now, just over a week after getting that big headliner in LFA, he's getting his UFC debut. You know, we just talked about where he's coming from, the Sikh Jitsu camp with so many great fighters like Michael Chiesa. I think it's going to be such a big, big event for him, his family, his camp, and his fans, all the people that have been following for this long. I mean, this is a massive opportunity. And the cool thing about it is, you know, I think he's getting into a fight right now where he does have a pretty good chance of putting on a show. He's a great wrestler. We talk about the Sean Woodson fight, right? He won that first round. And even in the second, he started off great. Unfortunately, when they got back to their feet, he got need pretty badly. Why did he get need? You know, telegraphing your takedowns is not the best recipe for success in MMA, especially at this level. And with him doing that against a guy like Woodson, whose biggest, biggest, you know, feat is being able to throw straight strikes down the middle, knees, elbows, uppercuts, that's him. And so being caught with that, you know, it, it very much spells for a good experience fight. And so now coming out of all of that, even being finished by Derek Minner, I think that he's starting to find himself as an MMA fighter. He's never been to a decision, win or lose. He's exciting as hell. So I think that's where we're going to be able to, you know, really take him in as a household name, even if it's on the undercard. Because, you know, in a fight against Matt Favola, who, in my opinion, looking at what he would have done for a game plan against a Frank Camacho, very much the wrestling. Don't get into these big, big brawls and punches and things like that. I mean, you look at his fight against, um, you know, Marco Poya Reyes. I mean, that was exactly what he did wrong, right? It, with a guy who's probably the better brawler, the better boxer. I mean, he just started winging it and, you know, Reyes dropped him clean. I think those those areas where Favola needs to be very careful because as an all-around fighter, in terms of timing, wrestling, grappling, he should be able to have a really good showing here. It does kind of suck for him that, you know, in terms of game plan against a guy like Frank Camacho, who he probably had a lot of confidence against based on his all-around ability and ground game, things like that, now takes on one of the hottest rising prospects coming out of LFA, who not only has, you know, crazy story, crazy growing fan base, these are the areas where, you know, happy that he took the fight to give Terrence the opportunity to fight in the UFC. Now, what are the what are the changes that he needs to make in terms of game plan? For me personally, obviously the wrestling, right? Now he's going to get a guy who's very much more comfortable going to the ground with him than Frank was. That's where maybe the striking will now come into play. We just talked about, it, you know, Terrence McKinney, in, in terms of previous fights, was shooting in kind of recklessly and trying to go for those takedowns and getting hit with strikes up the middle. 
maybe that's an opportunity that still exists for him. But you look at, you don't have much tape to go on with a minute and 45 seconds of cage time, but he's exciting. He's very, very, you know, all up in there at all times. So I think if Frivola is able to slow the pace down, make him fight his fight, that's probably a good start. Because I think if you're not letting yourself get hit, you're not letting yourself get taken down by a kid who's very active and, you know, clearly in the second round against Woodson made some mistakes, maybe you have more opportunities come second and third round after the guy gets out of the first round because what it looks like to me is win or lose mckinley is a wild man in the first round and that's going to be an area that they really need to fix up if they hope to have success against the kid who could very well easily knock him out in the first round if frivola is not very careful he's been coming into camps already i don't think he's going to be out of shape he was probably trading already within that last fight he hasn't had much cage time like we've you know stressed already so this is going to be a good one for him. I think he's getting a good matchup where the striking might not be something he needs to worry about so much. He's probably confident when it comes to the wrestling. So that's where I'm actually really excited to see. I don't care if these guys throw much punches at all. I would love to see a wrestling battle between these guys because Frivola is kind of that MMA veteran with a really good pedigree there. And McKinley's, McKinley's on the come up with a very similar game plan where the striking is now improving, his power is improving. And you know, we're, we're looking at two very exciting fighters who are, who are just trying to get better and make their way up the UFC. So the one thing that I've noticed is you don't have the, the, the lines for this one just yet. Frivola was coming in as a minus 200 favorite against Camacho. And like I said, his his game plan, his, his pedigree, all of the skills that he brings to the table against Camacho is, is very much negating some of the skills that Camacho even has. You know, I wouldn't want to get into a brawl with Frank Camacho. When these guys get hit, they throw. And the one thing that, you know, Camacho has been working on is not rushing in when he lands those big blows. And we've seen that in some of his past fights where he was able to take his time. So funny enough, we would expect Matt Frivola to employ some of that type of game plan against a guy like McKinney, who in maybe the second and third rounds might have a little bit more openings for Vola to expose him. So I'm excited for these fights. If that line does come up, we'll, we'll take a look at it and get it up as soon as we can. But as always, look up for the final picks coming out on Instagram for, for my little pick up, you know, like we said, for the love of the arts. But obviously, if we can make some money doing it, we're going to do that. So, you know, moving into that next one, we got that main event on ESPN Fight Pass between Penny Kanzad and Alexis Davis. I think this is a really, really good showcase of strikers, right? When you talk about Davis's last fight, I think she mixes it up well. The Sabino Mazzo fight really stands out for me because I think that that was an area where she was able to be just better on the feet. She was moving a bit better. She wasn't as stiff. You know, Sabina Mazzo uses a lot of setup strikes and likes to come in with those one twos. And I think in that one, you kind of notice the timing just go Davis's way, right? Anytime that Sabino Mazzo threw a kick, I felt like she was able to reverse that into a takedown of her own, keep it on the ground for as long as possible. That's kind of how she, you know, in a very gritty way, took that you know upset if you will from uh from sabina mazza now very interesting part about that fight i'm pretty sure someone farts in that fight i mean i'm just gonna throw that out there i've seen it a few times on fight pass it's really weird but there's a funny sound at the worst time but in any case let's move on from that um i think that that's the best thing about her game right the ability to showcase an mma style fight right the fact that those kicks were coming at her and she timed it perfectly to get it to the ground against the fighter who 100 wants to keep it standing best game plan you could possibly have. Penny Kansas, similar thing, right? I think she's going to be a much better striker than Sabina Mazzo, in my opinion. I think that her combos look crisp as hell. Her jab is just getting so clean, and that's where she's going to want to set things up, right? I think with Alexis Davis, you can beat her up more, 
that's going to spell a bit more of a opportunity come later rounds if you can't finish her right i think she's a hard fighter to put away and when you look at some of her previous fights i mean you know the jennifer maya fight stands out a lot for me because i felt like she was able to land a lot of significant strikes and you know even with that 29 28 unanimous decision it was one of those fights where we saw her take on the a fighter that was you know most recently taking on a, a fighter like valentina shevchenko and even stole a round so little things like that is where i really appreciate what alexis davis has in terms of a body of work and it's what's going to challenge kanzid quite a bit because you know with the sajara eubanks fight she was just really able to recover from a first round where maybe you know eubanks is a lot of her energy to keep that fight on the ground but Panny man, she just comes back in that second and third round looking so good. I think she's a great fighter for all three rounds, which should help her a lot here. 83% takedown defense in a fight where she could have the upper hand as a striker. And if Alexis Davis can't get this to the ground, that's going to be a problem for Alexis. I think that Pan Penny's going to just really use that, you know, check left hook and that perfect jab that's really coming along to keep her at bay. I think she's got pretty good kicks to, you know, keep Alexis Davis a little bit away from her. But that, but that, you know, those punches are really going to be what does the damage. And for me, I think that that's going to be where, especially if this fight goes three rounds, I mean, I could really see Penny stealing a, you know, 29-28 type of decision here if Alexis can't get this fight to the ground. Now, like I said, even against a, a fighter like Sajara Eubanks, who really has showcased some of her takedown ability against some of the bigger name prospects, even she wasn't able to find that similar success come the second and third rounds. So for me, I'm really appreciating watching a you know a prospect or a come up fighter like Panny now taking a, a fighter like Alexis Davis, who we just recently saw, you know, kind of dom dominating those similar areas where she was able to time those kicks and, and look for takedowns and get the fight to an area where she was definitely the more dominant fighter. So this is a really close fight in terms of how you want to peg each other because again, Penny needs to avoid the ground and keep using those, you know, check hooks and, and those jabs to just really, really put on a striking clinic, make Alexis Davis eat those punches, try to time those takedowns and use that 83% takedown defense to avoid it. Now, if Alexis Davis can eat those jabs and check punches and, and really push in close, keep it in the clinch and, and fight that really, really dirty style of MMA fight, she herself can steal a big win here. And with that said, I have no idea which way you put this fight. I want to lean Penny because her body of work right now is really nice, especially late in the rounds. And I think that's where... Alexis Davis has had a lot of success against other fighters where she's been able to break them and then dominate in the later rounds. And in this case, I think that we're going to see someone that is a little bit more up to the task. And so, like I said, we go to the we go to the odds right now. Penny's coming in now at a minus 235 opener with Alexis a plus 200. And that's shot down to about a plus, plus 165 for Alexis and a minus 210 or so for Penny. Some places are giving you under... Um, minus 200 now so again i think that you know if you judge it on the vegas lines how we like to do just to kind of see how people how the lines move and how vegas saw it you know when it all started seems like the boxing and, and the striking game of panty really is something that people want to sell you on i think that alexis davis will need to do a very similar game plan that she had against sabina mazzo here there's just no question for me that a similar take here will, will definitely help her secure a huge upset. But again, I think that that line speaks volumes as to where we can see Panny really take off as an MMA fighter. Alexis Davis is a massive, massive name when it comes to MMA, uh, you know, female MMA. And I think that with her avoiding those like, you know, it's one of those things where we're seeing the calf kick come, to, come into play so much, right? So if Alexis is able to land those calf kicks against Panny, that's another problem. You know, you can slow strikers down in a big way with that. So again, clinch work, leg kicks. I think that's what I want to see from Alexis to be able to pull this off. And 
if she can get past that jab and those check strikes, I mean, it's going to be a great fight. A lot closer than that line suggests. So keep an eye out for that one. It's going to be exciting. Honestly, man, I don't think there's a fight where I wouldn't want two guys fighting more. I mean, Mavsar Voyev is a Russian I've been talking about for, you know, since I started doing this. And then Hakeem Dawudu, I mean, I don't think there's two bigger Canadian prospects than Mean Hakeem and Charles Erjordet. I mean, if you want to talk about Canadian MMA, these are the guys you got to watch. And so... With that said, you know, let's talk about Mavzar Vloev and Hakeem Dawudu. God, I think that this might end up being the most underrated fight on the card from a skills perspective, for what it means for the division. I mean, let's be honest, they both rank, you know, in the top 15. You got one coming in at 14 and the other coming in at 15. It's like, how perfect could this matchup be? I think there's a lot of people that they can take on in that featherweight division with a big win here. And so let's jump right into them. I mean, Dawudu, let me bob on that knob a little bit, right? Like I said, biggest Canadian prospect. There's three things that I absolutely love about him. Patience, confidence, and output. He's got the best featherweight striking differential in the history of the division. 5.15 versus 2.31 uh, strikes landed versus strikes absorbed. I mean, come on, man. This has to be one of the better fighters we've seen coming out of Canada. He's taking on the right fighters. I mean, like I said, the Avloa fight, officially a ranked fight. How this is a prelim, I guess being on UFC 263 makes a lot of sense, right? So for me, it's going to be a lot about avoiding the wrestling, right? Using the, that striking differential to his advantage. Head movement, I mean, Go look at the head movement in that Tukugov fight. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. He continuously makes him miss. And I think, honestly, Zuvera, for having to try that hard, is what gassed him later in the fight. I mean, he had to try extra hard to hit Hakeem. He had to try and, you know, work in multiple uh, level changes to be able to get it to the ground because Hakeem was just doing absolutely phenomenal. Now, on top of that, with fights against guys like Zubera and Botniak, he still owns an 85% takedown defense. So these are the areas where Evloev is going to test him, right? Things like Evloev that you really want to avoid is he kind of chases, right? So I find that when Evloev lands big, he tends to chase for the finish. That's not what you want to do against a guy like Hakeem. Hakeem has solid head movement and footwork. So if you're landing and you think you haven't finished, but you don't, Chances are, unless you get him really up against the fence, change levels and try to take it to the ground, getting to that brawl just makes very limited sense to me because I really think that of Loiv here, he can utilize that improving boxing to get the fight down, use the level changes, use the feints up top to try and create more action, you know, in the bottom half. Because I really think that if this fight stays standing, he might have met his match. The coolest thing about these guys, man, no one other than uh, Barzola, Enrique Barzola, has landed more than 50 significant strikes on these guys. Let's talk about the Barzola fight for Mavzar Vloev. I mean, the guy's never been finished or finished. He's been to a decision in all of his fights. And even in that fight, the resiliency and the thought process, you then go for those takedowns. He landed five. That's what won him the fight because Barzola was pushing forward, eating strikes. I mean, it was very easy for him to do that. Sorry, I'm going to correct one thing. He landed four. The five takedowns was his debut against Sung Woo Choi. So going into that Barzola fight a little bit more, it's just the constant pressure did not help Evloev at all. I don't think he was able to find those opportunities to then chase for a finish. He had to use the boxing to then transition to the ground and finally finish the fight in terms of control time, you know, action on the ground, those kinds of things. Against a guy like Akeem, who's now holding an 85% takedown defense, 
with some of the guys we just named, this is a very competitive fight. For me, I'm curious to see who's going to land more because both guys are actually quite good at avoiding big strikes. Head movements there. I think Evloev against better strikers has looked a little bit more suspect, but again, the guy's phenomenal. I mean, he's very much looking for his first real test. I think the Grundy fight was really, you know, a fight for Grundy to kind of, you know, take in how good his striking is, how much he can improve on the feet, because what I loved about it was the heart and the grit. He kept pushing forward, but that was a fight where, unlike Barzola, he did not have to change up the game plan so much, and why take a chance going to the ground with Mike Grundy? So this is where I kind of see this fight really playing out. I mean, split decision against Nick Lentz in his last one, but... 82 strikes landed versus his 46 led. So that's where I'm liking of Loev, man. It's just really tough to outdo him, but the same can be said for Hakeem. So what you're watching here is the culmination of two guys who very much have developing games in both ends. You know, Hakeem's wrestling defense and ability to avoid the ground is just getting better and better. Whereas Mavzer Loev's like responsible striking is getting better and better. A little less, you know, indisciplined rushing in to try and get the big, you know, finishes. That is actually how I want to see him fight. Who cares if you're going to a decision? Keep it exciting for the fans if that's something you really care about, but get the dub. And I think this is a fight where it's just going to be such a chess match on the feet that Mavs are having that, you know, slight advantage on the ground. He should come in as a favorite here because let's be real, in terms of even betting lines, you know, seeing a Canadian fighter versus a, a Russian fighter, I, mean, I don't think us Canadian boys are getting much of that bump. So for me, already i gotta be honest and say hakeem's looking great as an underdog right going to the tukigov fight i can tell you right now i took him in that fight and that was a close fight but it was not that close in lines he really was a big dog there too and i think that there's an opportunity for him to come out looking the same here but again mobzer vlog's real claim to fame in this fight is going to be the wrestling because i think on the feet he's met his match so let's quickly take a look at these lines because i think this is a fight that, you know, is really going to dictate the future of that featherweight division. I think both of these guys could very much line up in the top 10 within the year. And a big fight against maybe even... A, I would actually love to see the winner take on Edson Barbosa. And you know what? Give the loser Shane Burgos. I would actually love to see that fight happen. Shane Burgos has also dropped in the standings, but he's exciting as hell. And so are these guys. And I think that's what's going to make some of these featherweight bouts so exciting come the rest of 2021, even with that top 5, top 10 looking so beastly, right? Let's see if one of these guys with the win can take on Edson. That's my little proposal there for that one. But let's go look at these lines quickly. I think that, like I said, you know, there it is, right? Mobs are low. Open as a minus 280. Hakeem Dawudu coming in as a plus 240. The lines did shift quite a bit. So you got Mobs are coming in more sort of minus 260. Some places minus 230, 225, all over the place. But Dawudu now coming back down to that plus 200, plus 175 range. So still getting Hakeem at that pretty crazy dog price. I think that the striking is going to be what keeps him in this fight. Now, if, you know, Evloev is eating these punches and coming forward, landing himself and being, you know, successful in changing levels, using the feints to then, you know, go for the takedown, it's going to be a long fight for Akeem because I do think that Evloev is going to be a bit better of a of an overall three-round athlete than Zubera was because that's where Hakeem just took over. The confidence was there. You know, and you even talk about some of the finishes on Hakeem's book, the, the Yoshihori uh, head kick, I mean... 
that is one huge claim to fame, if you ask me. And it happened very early in his UFC career. He's taken on good guys like Julio Aris and things like that. That's what I want to see from some of our bigger prospects. You can say the same thing about Charles Roday, who just finished up with Kali Bao and looking for that next fight. You know, finished that amazing third round finish in his most recent fight. So that's the stuff that I want to see more of. I think both of them, and I, I've talked about Charles Roday for no reason here, but, you know, they show a lot of prowess in that third round. Hakeem wasn't even breathing hard in his last fight and the big thing was in that second round or towards the end of that second round when he had to go to the corner he was very responsive to his coaches his coaches were very much dictating what's to come next in that third round what to look for and man he wasn't breathing hard he was very much paying attention and went in there and executed so this is an elite level fight i believe that if it wasn't for ufc 263 you'd be seeing this you know as even the fourth or you know third fight on, on a main card for any of these Vegas cards. You know, that's how good this fight should be. That's how much of a chess match I believe it's going to be on the feet. And look out for it, man. I think that this is a dark horse for fight of the night, depending on how it goes. But at the same time, these are not the guys that like to take damage. These are actually crazy good elite fighters. So that's where I think you're going to see crazy success for both of them. And, you know, if I don't see guys get hit, a lot of the head movement and landing nice quick shots, that's what I love the most. And I think that's what's going to make this fight fun. It's funny, I knew to change my shirt before talking about that last fight because I knew I was going to get crazy hype and maybe start sweating a little bit but you know joanne calderwood and uh our girl lauren murphy aka barb from the tough fans i mean this is a great fight when you think about that that division of just you know, complete openness i think these girls are very much fighting for a dark horse title challenger valentina has barely anybody to touch joanna Calderwood was actually going to get that next shot but she decided to take on jennifer maya in a fight that she really didn't have to ended up losing via armbar so she kind of de facto lost her title opportunity because it can't you can't give the loser the title shot jennifer maya ends up going in there and winning around everybody makes a big deal but you know, that was still a minus 1,000 favor going into the fight. And at one point, I saw that line at minus 10,000. Rarely see that in MMA. My girl, Valentina Shevchenko, bullet. I mean, that's that's who you're dealing with. So for me, I think Lauren Murphy is one of those fighters that just really is on the outside coming in now. You know, her, her recent record really proves how well she's done in terms of just improving, right? MMA lab mainstay now gets to fight in Arizona. There's a lot of good things going for her in this fight. Now, when you want to talk about Joanna Calderwood and some of the things she did well against Jessica, I mean, avoided those takedowns. The one thing that I absolutely loved about that fight that made such a difference was that when she won those pummel battles, those clinch battles to avoid the takedown, when they separated, Calderwood was really good at getting those big bows in there. And I think especially in some of these female fights, those little things can make such a difference when the power sometimes and the knockouts and all those things don't really happen. Those strikes add up because for her, she ended up landing 148 of 240 significant strikes against I. That was a beautiful performance. And I mean, talk about how much she loves the leg kicks, right? I think if you want to slow down a fighter like Barb, who's going to showcase a lot of all around MMA ability, use those leg kicks. If she's not able to get to you a lot quicker, that's going to pose a problem for her game plan to maybe get it to the ground maybe seeing what you've you know showcased in the past that's going to be something i'm sure lauren murphy has in her mind to kind of exploit if, if it doesn't go her way on the feet so for me it's one of those things where how good is joanna calderwood's you know wrestling defense and even you know action from the bottom is she able to get to the fence quick enough and get back to her feet before some real damage or you know before she loses any type of positioning there that's going to be where barb wants to take this fight in my opinion i don't think she's a bad striker i just think that 
Calderwood's improvement and showcase over her last few fights as a striker have been amazing. And for me, game plans are all about trying to exploit where you can see the biggest holes. And for me, regardless of how good my striking is, I just know that if I have faith in my wrestling and my grappling, I'm 100% going to consider taking Calderwood to those deeper waters and see how well she does. Because for me, I really love that, like, even in a fight against Jari Eubanks, she did pretty well. Now, I think that fight came down to two takedowns in control time, which is where she got the loss. But at the same time, it was such a phenomenal fight to kind of experience that side of things. I think for her, when you consider just how tough it is to take on the bigger wrestlers, sometimes it's such a work in progress to be able to get that positioning from from bottom, you know, to, to be able to get to the fence or to be able to kind of run a sweep to get top position. It's just, it's different. And I think for Lauren, this is a fight where she can now officially try to exploit a bit more of her total game. You know, she's going to be coming in with a 70% takedown defense versus Calderwood's 58. I think those are the things you keep an eye on, right? She's actually a pretty efficient striker and doesn't get hit as much. 63% defense and striking. I mean, that's a really good number to carry into a fight against a girl like Joanna Calderwood. I think that if Calderwood can at least keep this fight standing, avoid those takedowns, very similar work against jo uh, Jessica I is kind of where I was going with that, right? You know, in those clinches, she wins. Throw big bombs, get those knees to the body in there. I think slowing Barb down, <laughs> slowing Lauren Murphy down is going to be the biggest thing for her. And if she's not able to get those takedowns in the second and third when maybe these girls are a bit more tired, you know, this is a fight for Joanne to win. So I'm excited to see where Joanne can go with this fight because, again, we're watching her get these, you know, de facto number one contender fights because I do believe that with who Valentina's just been, you know, destroying in the octagon, these two girls could very well earn a title shot with a big performance. That's where, you know, you got to kind of ask yourself, you know, prelim, you know, you know, number one contender fights, like that's how depleted Valentina Shevchenko's division is. So with that said, let's take a look at the lines. I mean, I'm kind of leaning Lauren Murphy here because I think that her all around ability and even just the little things, right? Being able to fight in Arizona, not having to shift around too much. There's a lot of good things going for her in this fight where I think that riding such a hot streak and what she's done lately is going to help her because... I mean, that's what I feel like the momentum is all about, especially in these female fights. You know, we're seeing such good chess matches in some cases, but look at the four wins. Mara Barella, Andrea Lee, Roxanne Modafferi, and Lilia Shakirova. And that Shakirova fight was one where she really was able to dominate and showcase how well she's been doing. So let's take a look at these lines. I really think Lauren deserves the... Nope, she's not the favorite. Lauren's coming in as a plus 130 underdog. Joanna Calderwood open as a minus 150 not seeing much movement here. If anything, Joanna Calderwood's kind of hovering still between that one minus 140, minus 150, but there's Lauren Murphy actually coming down from that plus 130, closer to that plus 115, plus 120 range, which is still fairly close fight. For all we know, this could close as a, a pretty good pick -em. I think that Lauren could generate some action as a dog. Personally, I think that this would be something I'd consider I would obviously let you know if I'm going to be betting this one. Don't forget about the Super Saiyan hair. That's one where from a betting perspective, we're definitely letting you know which one we really, really like. But, you know, just in terms of, you know, for the love of the arts, I think that this is one where it should be closer to a pick'em. I think that where Barb, <laughs> wow, where Lord Murphy is better. Eddie Alvarez screwed me over there. Where Lord Murphy's better, it really has been areas where we've seen holes in Joanna Calderwood's game.
I think that that's going to be a problem. I think Joanne really needs to kind of keep that fight standing and, and showcase just how good she is in those little areas, like getting those leg kicks in, throwing those elbows on the brakes. That's where she's going to be able to win this fight, I think. And in terms of that striking advantage, it's very clear in the line. So keep an eye for that one. I think there's a there's a dog opportunity there. But at the same time, Joanne Calderwood looks very fired up after de- taking that loss from Jennifer Maya. So, you know, in that sense, there's just no reason to count either of these girls out so it might be dog or pass as the betting folks say and next up we got a rematch now this is coming from a very interesting time in mma lately right so eric anders and darren stewart will do battle for the second time the first fight was actually crazy crazy exciting right we saw eric anders have tremendous success in the striking game against darren stewart it felt like darren stewart was just not willing to put his hands up and took every punch definitely one of those guys that likes to punch himself out of the cobwebs and punch himself out of bad situations where i think that's a very terrible idea against a guy like eric anders especially in the first round when he's generating so much power whether it be takedowns punches he's a very powerful guy and he looks crazy healthy right now going into 2021 so that's where for me i think that darren stewart has a lot to learn going into the second fight because i think eric anders is gonna have a lot of confidence based on how that fight went now in retrospect he still couldn't finish him after throwing that much damage out now the one thing about eric is like after that kind of output, what would he have looked like in the second and third rounds? One thing we've noticed about Darren Stewart is he's so durable. And he actually does pretty well over the course of a fight. He doesn't fade that much if he doesn't take too much damage. I thought the great a great fight was him and Kevin Holland, right? That was a really solid fight there. And this is an example where I think if it goes to the later rounds, you're going to see something very similar, a lot more competitive. But in the early rounds understand that eric anders is going to be so powerful and try to keep those hands up try to keep moving stay away from the fence eric wants you up against the fence at all times he can throw big bombs at you and if he's not landing he'll go for the takedown that's his wheelhouse that's what he loves and i think staying out of that position alone should very much help him in this fight while also keeping those hands up when you look at the takedown defense, 65% versus the 80%, you know, the game plan really makes sense for Eric Anders here. And so for Darren Stewart, it's like avoid the wrestling, use the kickboxing. I think that leg kicks very early, calf kicks, slow that power down as soon as possible. Getting into brawls with Eric Anders in the first round is just a bad idea. He's a very powerful man, but he comes in heavy. And that's where I think that Darren Stewart has, you know, a little bit more to learn. And it's funny, right? We're talking about that knee now. Cormier and Bisping, you know, towards the end of that fight, this is how bad the first round was going for Darren. They kind of say like, you know, Yo, Bisping, do you get up though? You know, he's kind of insinuating after the week that we've seen, you know, I poke, oh no, I can't go. Oh, Neil, no, I can't go. I'm not saying anything against anyone. Injuries are injuries, but that's clearly what Cormier and Bisping were kind of referring to. So that was within a week of the Aljamain fight. You know, it happened on the same card as the eye poke with Bilal and Leon. It's kind of crazy, you know, that we've seen so much of that lately, despite not seeing it for so long. So that's where, for me, I'm just, I'm really interested to see if Darren's able to make the adjustments here, because I really think that if this fight gets past the first round, and he's able to kind of do damage to the body, get some leg kicks in there to really slow down Eric Anders, this is going to completely open up this fight. 
So based on that first fight, I wouldn't be surprised if Eric is coming in as a much bigger favorite than maybe the first fight. That's where I'm kind of seeing, you know, if I have a game plan, it's just really tough to see him not execute the same way without Darren making significant adjustments, especially in that first round when it comes to being up against the fence, taking the shots that he did, you know, trying to punch his way out of those cobwebs. And it's just, it was just a bad look for him. And I don't think that that's the normal way he would want to fight. And I think that was just a very exciting part of the game where, you know, if he takes a step back and watches the tape, he's going to understand why that didn't look so good. And the one thing I love about him is, you know, he's already got fights against guys like Carl Robertson, Julian Marquez. And, you know, other than Barossa, all of these are against ranked opponents, right? A lot of, a lot of good at UFC experience that he's been getting under his belt. And a veteran like Eric Anders is just another notch on the belt if he can pull it off. And I'm going to use the line, pull it off because based on the first fight, based on where I see these lines, I do think that Eric Anders is going to come in with a much bigger pedigree, you know, wrestling's going to be there. He showcased how much better he looked athletically and in the striking. And I'll be honest with you, that weigh-in, I remember telling myself, like, holy mother, Eric Anders looks incredible shape. And frankly, he proved it in the fight. So let's take a look at these lines. I'd be shocked if that wasn't the case. And there you go, right? These guys opened up as even money. And there you see Eric Anders now moving closer to that minus 150 range with Darren falling to between that plus 115 and plus 130 range across the board here. And I think that's fair, right? We just talked about why Eric kind of deserves to be the favorite and for them to open up as a pick em, and for Eric to kind of, you know, shift towards a bit more of a favorite makes a lot of sense here because people are obviously moving that line based on what they're researching and seeing in their previous fight. That's going to be an exciting one. And let's be real, it's, it, it's basically pushing us into what could be the most exciting fight on the card right this has all the makings of the perfect feeder fight going into the main card as a pay-per-view if you were you know trying to figure out if you should buy the fight i think watching drew dauber and brad riddell mix it up could push you in the right direction because you know drew dauber came into a fight where Islam Makachev, right? You're gonna. We hear everybody talk about what it's like to wrestle could be what it's what it's like to wrestle Islam Makachev. It's not like people are bad wrestlers, man. Their understanding of weight distribution, their ability to really shift with every movement, they're just steps ahead of you. That's what makes them so good. And what I have to give a lot of respect to Drew Dauber for is to go from a game plan that he has to fight, you know, Islam Makachev, to now a game plan where he has to fight Brad Riddell. I mean, to be quite honest, that is such a drastic shift where in terms of what he's learned over the past year I'm sure it's been an absolutely amazing you know training camp for him over the last few so I'm excited to see what he can do on the feet you know we've even heard him in a couple of interviews check out my boy Mike Owens he's got an interview with uh you know Drew Dauber up but he pretty much says it right he's just really excited to get in there with a guy like Brad Riddell because he signed to that dotted line being like oh I don't think this boy's gonna wrestle me I'm gonna get in there and do my thing and let's just hope for a really exciting fight both these guys have probably got that 50k on their mind so I'm excited to see what Dauber can do you know he's only landed seven takedowns in his entire career he had five against Holtzman two against John Tuck so I don't see this one going to the ground as much if I'm Brad Riddell though maybe this is an option for me to consider as much as I love beating people up in my beautiful kickboxing I have a pretty good ground game compared to a lot of fighters why do I say that 
look at his body of work, man. He's coming off a 3-0 and UFC record right now. Was supposed to fight Gillespie, but that fight fell through. And I mean, you know, talk about the durability and heart he's shown in his previous fights. It's incredible, right? The Jimmy Malarkey one is one I really enjoyed because it's the best fight to talk about how everybody tries to take Brad Riddell down because nobody wants to strike with him. But with Jimmy Malarkey, I mean, when you're not able to take him down, so Malarkey lands 3 of 15 takedowns, 2 in the second, 1 in the third, scorecards go 30-26, 30-26, 29-27. Brad Riddell, if you're not able to get this man to the ground, he's coming for that ass. And when you talk about some of the success that people have had against him, you know, Mustafaev and De Silva both had immense success with the takedowns in the first round. Like De Silva had three, Mustafaev had four. He even got three in the second, but he still lost the round to two of the three judges, which gave Brad Riddell that win. You know, that's what I'm trying to say with him. It's like, He's willing to let you do your thing in that first round because he thinks he's can come, he's going to come out of that. He's basically coming out of all of these wrestling battles and say, oh, now you're tired? Come and stand with me because now I'm going to beat your ass. That's what he's basically doing. His output is phenomenal. His striking is all there. And frankly, his ability to deal with the damage on the ground is pretty phenomenal, you know, especially coming off of that fight with like a guy, Jim Malarkey, right? I think that that was a great example where he was able to be like, no, 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 we stand. And I think the same thing you're going to see, you know, in the previous fights is something that's going to be happening here. And why I would flip the script a little bit is if I'm Brad Riddell, I'm kind of thinking to myself like, hey, Drew Dauber definitely hates the groundwork. He's such a good kickboxer. He's a little stiff. I mean, I'm not going to twist it. His combos are pretty much, you know, readable in some ways. But that's where I think Brad Riddell could still be like, I'm competitive with him as a striker. But maybe I surprise him with a couple takedowns just to steal the rounds. I think that's an area where if Brad Riddell has incorporated that into his game plan, it's going to surprise a lot of people. I think that it all comes down to what do I want more, that 50K bonus or a guaranteed win? I mean, nothing's guaranteed in this world, but I really believe that incorporating that full level changing style, MMA style game to this fight will really help him generate a big W here because I think Drew's going to be very excited to keep this fight standing and just throw bombs, which Brad Bertal is very happy to, you know, welcome as a fighter. But strategically speaking, I think that the guys at City Kickboxing have been doing a lot of work on the ground and it's starting to show in all of their fights. Kaikar France with the comeback he did pretty much being in a potential rear naked choke for most of the first round. That's where I kind of want to see these guys make a lot of the improvements. And again, like I said, unless you're able to get Brad Riddell to the ground in the first, you know, round, if not maybe the second, he seems to have his way with you as the fight goes on. So I'm really excited for this fight. I think that it, it's the perfect fight to get excited about when it comes to just how exciting it's going to be. I think that if it stays standing, there's no better fight to enjoy going into the main card here. So I'm really excited to check out these lines. I want to give the edge to Brad Riddell. And the only reason I'm doing that is because in the fights that we've seen, when he has had to take on some of these grapplers, his resiliency and durability has proved to be what gets him the W anyway. So I'm really excited to see what he can do across the board, whether it comes to groundwork, getting back to the feet, pushing Drew into the fence, maybe some dirty boxing, avoid the kicks altogether maybe of Drew Dobrin. You know, this is a pretty clean fight for him. Now on the flip side, Drew's going to go 
he's gonna bang him right he, he's really hoping to get in there showcase that kickboxing be able to use that head movement he does get hit sometimes but his power is there and i think that if brad you know isn't as disciplined as he showed in the past maybe drew does get that shot and i think that this is a very competitive fight on the feet which is why i kind of think brad riddell should entertain that game plan because at that point i do believe it's it's closer to a toss-up with brad riddell getting a bit of an edge so looking at the lines I mean, I'm obviously a little bit off here. Drew Dauber's coming in. Opener, minus 125. Now sitting close to that minus 135 to minus 145. Brad Riddell actually opened at a plus 105 and is now sitting around that plus 110. Some crazy folks are offering that a plus 125. I mean, we know what Drew Dauber brings to the table. The elevation training is there. The cardio is there. His ability to fight with anybody on the feet is there and i think that's what dictate what's dictating this fight which is why i'm saying a very surprised game plan for brad riddell could shock the world and maybe shock these betters too so let's see what happens heading into the main card that's gonna be crazy fun and to be honest from top to bottom these prelims are exciting as hell with crazy elite strikers who could pretty much headline a main card of one of these Vegas cards, you know, outside of UFC 53. So keep it locked. Those are going to be incredible. And let's get into that main card. Man, I'm really glad I did not have to change my shirt again for the third time, just in case, you know, for how hype I've been getting about this card. But we're about to jump right into that main card now. I, I, I can't get over how amazing it is. You have three five-round fights to, you know, end all of it off on. I mean, just think about how crazy this card in terms of potential really is. And, you know, we're getting right into a fight between Paul Craig and, and Jamal Hill. And you know what's crazy about this fight is it's just such a perfect example of, you know, the first round deadly striker versus the guy who can try to take as much damage as possible and then end you late in a fight. You know, we can talk about Paul Craig in both good and bad ways sometimes, right? In terms of striking. Only person he's ever really finished on strikes is a 39 to 40 year old version of Shogun Hua, which culminated after, you know, a very close fight the first time out. I think he showcased, you know, better striking, but at the same time, we're talking about a Shogun whose chin is very questionable now. And unless he gets out of that first round when you're a little tired, there's a good chance you're able to end him. Now, in this case, you look at Paul Craig's kind of recent uh, UFC action, there's a few fights that stand out to me, right? When you think about the Ankalev and the uh, Inchukwe fight, both of those fights, Paul Craig was losing in such a big way. And basically all he did was last, last, last till he got the third round and then just ended it in classic Paul Craig way with a beautiful submission. Now in the Inchukwe fight, like I really was, you know, almost disappointed in the way that Inchukwe really approached that fight because I think that if you're watching it, it's just all he had to do was stand up at some point there. But he did get caught pretty clean and you know i can only imagine the frustration on him and beautiful comeback victory by the way for Inchukwe after that so you know everybody kind of learns from their mistakes especially in this sport and for paul craig to kind of pull that off twice you know the guy's got five bonuses under his belt so he's doing something right when it comes to making money in mma but you know let's talk about the negative three guys have finished him in the first round alonzo menafield tyson pedro and uh, Khalil Roundtree. So when you think about all three of those guys being able to finish in the first round, I mean, they all come with pretty crazy power early in a fight if you can't take them down. And to be quite honest, I mean, precision-wise, I'm actually going to give the edge to Jamal Hill. 7.9 strikes landed per minute. And the guys barely see much action in the UFC, right? So that's for me where I kind of get excited about just how good, uh, you know, I think Jamal Hill can be in this fight now. 
Let's talk about the negatives with Jamal Hill, because I think there's quite a bit to talk about there, right? The takedown defense for one is very, very, very questionable. 53% takedown defense going into this fight is something you want to keep your eye on. I mean, Paul Craig is only taking down people at a clip of 26 or so percent uh, and in his own right. But, you know, I think the defense is that there outweighs the offense way, way more. And you can even take take a look at the Darko Stosic fight. The guy was taken down six times in total, but only gave about two and a half minutes of control time and was able to land 101 of 233 significant strikes. Just wow, right? And so what makes this fight so interesting is that you basically have Paul Craig who has to overcome that first round, you know, beast in what Jamal Hill has basically become. Whereas Jamal Hill now has to realize, like, if I don't get a finish in the first round, I need to improve that takedown defense in this fight because if I don't, Paul Craig is really, really going to be able to exploit his normal game plan, which is survive as best as I humanly can in the first and then ride you out till you're tired. And I, you know, braveheart you in the very most Scottish way possible on the ground when the time comes. So for me, it's really about Jamal Hill using those feints and strikes to keep him guessing. I think that if Paul Craig's hands are down at any point in time, Jamal Hill is a very accurate striker. You know, I just touched on, you know, landing almost eight strikes per minute, especially when he's fresh in the first round. Can you imagine Paul Craig taking, you know, very accurate and powerful strikes in the first round at a clip of potentially, you know, 40? I mean, that's going to be something that you very much want to consider as a as a fighter who tends to get finished in the first round, but then other than that, you know, kind of has his way with people uh, on the other end when it comes to second and third rounds. So such a good tale of the tape and matchmaking for this one. I think that if you were a prop guy before we even get into the lines, I mean, it's pretty simple, right? You know, throw some money on Jamal Hill to win in the first. Throw some money on Paul Craig to win in the third and just see what happens. I mean, jokes aside, I think that Jamal Hill deserves to be a favorite in this one only because when you look at how Paul Craig can lose a fight, it kind of is how Jamal Hill proves to win fights. And I think that this will be his toughest test to date. But at the same time, you know, getting the victory over Ove St. Prue the way he did really showcases just how good he can be at this weight class and the big thing for me is you know paul craig when you very much consider the striking inefficiencies that are there it, it's a it's a tough one it's a tough one to call because if jamal hill finds success early it's his fight i just i refuse to believe that if he's landing big powerful shots you know even at maybe 10 to 15 in total i think something's gonna land to very much rock paul craig and the thing about jamal hill man is He's now already coaching UFC fighters. You know, you see him in the corner of a bunch of guys. Like, he's made it in a big way very quickly. And I think that's where he's earned the respect of not only pundits, but hardcore fans and even fighters, man. I think he's just really, really primed for a big showing. You know, birthday in only 1991, hella young for an MMA fighter. I think he's got a huge future ahead of him. He's just got to get through this, you know, demolition man when it comes to second and third rounds to be able to you know take a non take on another big you know say a top 10 fighter of, of some kind so i'm giving jamal hill the edge let's take a look at the wow this is crazy high man wow i'm actually really surprised at this line i mean i would have probably pegged jamal hill for more of a minus 190 to a minus 210 of a, of a fighter i just think this one's really really you know if he doesn't finish in the first round with 53 percent takedown defense it's just really really crazy to think that paul craig is is getting this much juice 
you know, he opened at a plus 250 and it's already working its way down to about that plus 210 in some places. But I mean, on average, it's still around that plus 240 to plus 250, man. I think that's an incredible line. I mean, dogger pass for Sun, I can, some I can almost guarantee it because I can, I can pretty much guarantee very few people are going to jump on Jamal Hill at minus 300, which is why you're now seeing him get closer to that minus 275 range. I think this is a crazy line when you really consider what's going into this fight because you know outside of that first round i think it's hella competitive and jamal hill will slow down that power will dissipate it, it you know there's only so many guys that we can pretty much count on our hands that can keep that level of power for five rounds or, or three rounds i guess in this case you know already getting excited for three uh five <laughs> three five round fights but I think this is one where it's just it's really tough to call once it leaves the first round and this line does not dictate that so very curious what you guys are all thinking i mean if you have a lean or any type of comments i would love to see it in the comments below uh that's one where i'm actually very much surprised the line but you know we're gonna move right on to the next fight after that and you know talk about Bilal muhammad and damian maya first of all Damian Maya is doing a little bit of a vlog on the history of BJJ. So if you have any interest in that, I would definitely go check that out because it's probably an absolutely phenomenal, uh, you know, watch for anyone that's either new to the BJJ world or wants to learn more. There's nobody better to learn it from when it comes to the MMA realm. And so, you know, my wife has caught me watching Ronaldo Souza and Damian Maya fights with or grappling matches with my hands down my pants. So, you know, all those little things can happen as well. But looking at this, you know, one thing I really want to make clear about Damian Maia as well, when you look at his record over the last 10 years, these are the people that he's lost to. Chris Weidman, Jake Shields, Rory McDonald, Tyron Woodley, Colby Covington, and Kamaru Usman. The only person to finish him since Nate Marquardt in 2009 is Gilbert Burns. Gilbert Burns could knock out an elephant if he wants to. So, I mean, that's where I feel like you're looking at one of the most elite fighters to never win a championship, you know, hat tip Kenny Florian, but that's what, what really makes me excited and probably one of the bigger Damian Maia fans on the planet. He really culminates into an era where I just became such an obsessive, you know, diehard fan, wish I was, you know, in MMA at the time. Those little things are where I really just have such a, you know, growing heart-based love for the man and it'll never dissipate because I just love BJJ and grappling so much, but you know, I don't think anything changes from his game plan here. He has to work in some strikes to be able to get that takedown. He's going to look for it all fight. I think the things that I don't like about him the most are the desperation. I feel like when he does get beaten up a little bit, he does get slower. The age catches up. He's kind of lunging for those takedowns. They're not set up. It kind of gets embarrassing. And for a guy who's that elite, it's just very unbecoming, right? It doesn't look like the same fighter. And I mean, we just talked about how, you know, takedown actions can be so finicky, right? 26% for probably the greatest BJJ uh, practitioner in MMA ever. I think that's what Ryan Hall's making, you know, he'll, he'll come around, but I think Damian Maia deserves all the credit in the world right now. I gotta give Ronaldo Sousa a bit of credit there too. You know, he gets a big, big W for me. I think those are the two guys that have absolutely fallen off just from their grappling and coming into the uh, MMA world. But again, we gotta talk about just how difficult it's going to be for him to get his hands on a guy that can keep moving you know Bilal Muhammad is the kind of guy that can fight during Ramadan he doesn't need to eat for his fights that's how good his cardio can be I think that the eye poke against uh, Leon Edwards was such a you know blow to his career because that was such a massive fight that he stepped up for and I think that in that case you kind of had really good examples of where Bilal still was 
struggling. I think that that moment he ate that head kick, you know, a guy that really is durable as hell, very tough to knock out. We can be honest with ourselves and say when that head kick landed on Bilal, he had to find himself again. The eyes were definitely trying to focus up and get himself back in the fight. I really enjoy how much grit and perseverance and heart that he does have. You can see the heart when that eye poke happened. He was absolutely devastated. I think those are the things that you really want to kind of love about a fighter. You know, he really dedicates himself in the biggest way possible. I think he's making all the right moves. He's not the biggest finisher, so he's not the most exciting fighter. Maybe people don't like him for those reasons. I'm not sure. I love the guy. He's got one sub finish against Takashi Sato. He's got one KO finish against Augusto Montano. But other than that, you know, he's just a good overall MMA fighter that can take anybody to the distance. Now, the only person to ever knock him out is Vincent Luque. Now, if I could ever watch Gilbert Burns and Vincent Luque fight, that is a dream matchup. Unfortunately, they're the best of friends in fight out of Sanford MMA. So maybe we can steal some tape from them and see some of those rolling battles and some of those striking clinics. But I think that's an incredible matchup to be made, but it never will be. I really want to get my hands on that uh, tape out of Sanford MMA. Hey, Sanford, if you see this, please hook me up. I would love to watch it just for the fun of it. Um, but yeah, I think for Bilal, avoiding a lot of those uh, types of... I, I, early on, they're going to be, you know, I think proper level changes you're gonna see damien try to set those up but i do not believe that Bilal is at all fearful of the boxing he's gonna go in thinking he's the much better boxer if he's able to piece him up on the feet both you know head strikes and maybe even get the legs i think he can slow down damien maya even within the first round and by that second third round man if damien maya cannot get you to the ground and you are the better striker in the fight and you have a gas tank like Bilal's. Oh, such a tough fight for Damian Maia to win. You know, he really has to put it on him in that first round, get him up against the fence. You know, I think Leon Edwards actually had pretty good ability to get in close and try to keep that clinch game going. I think those are the areas where if you're going to take notes from Bilal's previous fight, that's going to give you a bit of optimism, right? I think being able to get into the clinch where you're basically the best, uh, that's going to dictate a lot of the fight moving forward. Bilal's not going to get tired. So if you can keep doing that while avoiding those big strikes and maintain your cardio, you know, a grappling battle right now against Bilal would be very fun to watch. And it'd be interesting to see if he's, you know, for only the second time ever to get finished by somebody, that to Vincent Luque's and the Damian Mayas of the world. I'm really interested to see that. I think Bilal's, you know, history in MMA just speaks for itself. He deserves these fights. He's finally on these main cards. Just got to fight Leon Edwards as a main event. Now he's basically, you know, the fight leading into what is basically three main events. You know, he's definitely getting the um, notoriety that he deserves. And I'm excited to see what he can do against a legend like Damian Maia because if he keeps the fight standing and he avoids the takedowns, I don't see him losing this fight. And that's coming from one of the biggest Damian Maia fans you'll ever meet. So let's take a look at the lines. It's pretty clear what both of these guys need to do to win the fight. And there it is, man. It's just so difficult to see Damian Maia win this fight because his path to victory is just so similar in every fight. And that unless he comes out looking like, you know, a brand new striker with beautiful head movement and level changes that are absolutely elite, that incorporate the jabs and the kicks and all of those things, unfortunately, a guy like Bilal, who is so good in the areas that you need to be against a guy like Damian Maya, 
good boxer, great cardio, able to keep the distance. You know, that is going to be where the fight is won for him. So Bilal is a minus 240 opener, some places at minus 250, some places at minus 225. So he's hovering around there. My opens up at a plus 205, obviously gets a bit of bump from there some, from some fans. And now he's sitting about that minus, or sorry, that plus 175 to a plus 190 dog. So, you know, even before we get into those three main events, we'll call them all these fights have very incredible lines when you think about who they're fighting and how big of a dog there are you know so this fight and the last fight you have to consider paul craig being you know a plus you know above a plus 200 dog david my you know it's a rare occasion and these guys are definitely getting the right notoriety against some of these legends like you know damian maya so i'm hoping that it's a fun fight hoping for no injuries or anything like that as usual you know we don't want that to ever happen but Bilal's earned this opportunity and I hope that he puts on a good show for both his fans and him you know he's got a huge fan base and so does Damian Meyer right what a legend I think that this is going to be the one fight where if he can pull off a victory it's going to reset his career a bit still one of the best fighters to never win a UFC title and you know that's a hall of famer in my opinion you know bar none so I'd like to get into the next one I think that one's a crazy exciting fight that we know that we're going to get pumped up for but my Southpaw versus Southpaw. We got Leon Edwards against Nate Diaz. Now, funny enough, if this was a three-round fight, I do think that there's a bit more of an edge that you can give Nate Diaz a bit of a bump. You know, I think that having to go five rounds and the opportunity to lose on points against a guy like Leon Edwards will be tough because if you look at the Connor fight, for example, he was able to outlast Connor and finish him. Now, if you're talking about a five-round fight with a guy like Leon Edwards, it's going to be way harder to tire this man out, to land the way you do. You know, to be able to push forward, I think that's going to be crazy, crazy tough. The one thing I loved about Leon Edwards in that fight against Bilal was two things, man. He was able to get the clinch if he needed it. And the big thing was he loves this... Um, cross and head kick setup and that's actually how he ended up getting the eye poke in there but that combo is what caused that fight to stop but he loves that combo and he throws it off and, and i think against a guy like diaz who has only ever been finished by a josh thompson head kick that basically lives rent free in my head you know every time i even hear the name josh I get stalked. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, that's that's a tough loss. You know, I'll never forget watching Nick Diaz. Sorry, Nick Diaz throw. You can see the towel kind of fly in the air when he uh, ends him like that. It's just they knew they had to end the fight. Nate was completely out of it. One of the toughest fights a Nate Diaz fan could ever go through because outside of that, win or lose, he's just so exciting and fun to watch, right? But in terms of just overall skill, it's just tough to see Leon getting caught in bad positions, right? Stay out of the boxing range, stay out of Nate Diaz's guard. Pretty simple, right? For a guy who's got such good kickboxing, who's becoming a well-rounded fighter, you know, after some of those early fights where we saw him get taken down, I think we're seeing him really get acclimated to what UFC level top five fighters look like. You know, we talk about Kamaru Usman's and those kinds of losses. I mean, he's very much on the cusp of that. And if it weren't for some of the most unlucky situations any fighter has ever been through in the UFC, I mean, Leon Edwards has been through it all. And to finally get UFC 263, you know, five round fight as the third last fight on the card. I mean, we're starting to see a lot of guys kind of get their dues, especially on this card. And We'll talk about a money fight, right, against a guy like Nate Diaz. You know, he had a nice little uh, quote about just how long he's been doing this and how all these guys are starting to do it now. But, you know, a guy fought Benson Henderson for a title almost 10 years ago. That's crazy. 
right? Like this guy's just been around. He's been doing it all. And, you know, people harp on him so much for some of his outings and, you know, how tough he's looked in some of those. But, you know, since 2014, his only losses are McGregor, Masvidal, Cut, and Dos Anjos. So, like, that's a pretty big deal. Mind you, he doesn't fight as much as some of these other guys, but that's a really good list of guys to take some L's to. Not to mention, he's even with McGregor one and one. So, you know, that's a fight that everybody's waiting for. Who knows when that happens? But I think that that's what's going to make this such an incredible fight. Keep looking for those one-twos. If you're able to get it to the ground, you're obviously going to take that opportunity. I think that Leon, keeping that distance, staying disciplined, I mean, he showcased a lot of that against Bilal, but Bilal was able to get a few shots in there himself. And I think with with Nate Diaz's ability to push forward and use that boxing and attack the body a little bit, it's going to be what keeps Leon Edwards, you know, a little bit at bay. I think that if this fight gets close to the fence, dirty boxing areas, I don't see Leon Edwards wanting to get into those areas. There's just no reason for him to do that. Use the kicks, attack the body, kick the legs out. There's so many great examples of guys trying to box at length with Nate Diaz and, and losing terribly. Michael Johnson, man, that's one of my favorite fights of all time because I love both these guys. And to be honest, it was like may the best man win in terms of that really long and, and, and lanky style of coming in and out and boxing. And it was phenomenal to watch both these guys really go at it. And now you're having a guy that's a bit more technical, very well-rounded now as a, as a more experienced UFC fighter in Leon Edwards. So I'm really having trouble kind of, you know, seeing any areas where, where Nate can really win this fight off of just pure game plan only because I think that Leon Edwards is just going to have answers for those usual areas where Nate Diaz wins his fights. You know, if this fight goes to the ground and Nate Diaz is in his guard, well, look out for some of those triangles. Look out for some of those transitions into more opportune positions. That's where Nate Diaz is going to have some fun. And in boxing range, man, I think he's going to be able to land some shots because he can take a whole bunch. But I mean, you know, this meme right here kind of got me a little bit of a chuckle. So that's the little things we want to see. How much damage is Nate going to take trying to get this fight to the areas that he needs to get them to? That's the place where I think a lot of the, I mean, unbiased fans and the Leon fans are having trouble seeing any ways for Leon to lose this fight. I think that Nate has the ability to win it without question, but it just comes down to those, you know, definitive paths to victory. And unless he truly outstrikes him or gets this to the ground, it's a very, very tough fight to, to, to see him winning, you know, I guess completely outright finish, you know, 30, 27s across the board, that kind of thing. So let's take a look at the lines. I think it's pretty obvious to know that we think Leon Edwards should be the favorite. I see no reason why, you know, after the long layoff for Nate Diaz and, you know, even pulling out of the last one, all that kind of stuff. I just think that it's, it's tough. It's tough to give Nate any bump as much as I love him and want to see him, you know, win this fight, to be quite honest. I know Leon's going to get his opportunities, right? It's just, it's the battle of the one twos. The kicking game of Leon Edwards should be the difference. Let's take a look at the lines. My God, my God. Leon Edwards opened at as a minus 450 favorite and is now sitting at a minus 600. Nate Diaz moved from a plus 300 to a plus 400. I mean, some places give you to a plus 425. Some places give you a plus 365. I mean, good Lord. This, I mean, the last three fights in terms of lines, man, you would not expect the fighters who are fighting are fighting. But that's how good the opponents seem to be in terms of Jamal Hill, Bilal Muhammad, and Leon Edwards. So very interesting you know start if not midpoint of the main card to keep an eye on the lines are pretty outrageous so it will be interesting to see if these if these fights are even close 
to be honest. These lines are obviously already way off. So I'm hoping that they're close in general. Obviously, for the love of the arts, hashtag, that's our, that's our line here. And we know why. It's just about enjoying it. No injuries, none of that fun stuff. Let's just keep it rolling into two title fights. Now, I've talked about having hard-ons for a lot of fighters. Brandon Marino has been my favorite flyweight for so long. I feel like he's been chasing a title as much as I've been wanting him to chase a title and get that opportunity. And here we are, man. I, there's very few that I would be so openly biased about, but he's one. I think that his heart, grit, and mentality going into these fights are just... He's built different, man. We used it once before with Terrence McKinney. I'm going to use it here. He's built different. And the reason I say that is because of how he comes back or even takes some of the damage that he does. It's incredible just how good he can be. The one thing I want to say about this fight is, you know, if, if you look at the first fight with Davison Figueredo, he, he even broke that forearm. It looked like there was definitely some injuries to that left arm there, was barely able to throw it. He even tried at some point. It's just he's so durable and so much heart and just so much fun to watch. And I think that's where everyone's kind of falling in love with him. Kept that fight, you know, very close. Davison Figueredo actually ended up losing a point for a low blow. So that is probably where a lot of the draw came from. I think that Figueredo was able to take, you know, the, the first and the one, three, and five, in my opinion. I think the two and four landed a bit more in, in, in Marino's favor, which is where maybe that draw came into play with that third round. So I think that this is kind of his fight to, to really prove that that was no fluke. Because the one thing about Figueroa I want to say is he's a different flyweight, man. He's an absolutely different flyweight. The stance, the power in both hands, the way he throws the left and right hooks, man, it's putting anybody out. They seem to be, you know, ambidextrous power, if you will, uh, in both those hands. And uh, I just, it's hard to see him really losing in a definitive way which makes this a close fight no matter what. You know, some of the things that I absolutely love that he does is he'll faint to the body and just land big up top. And I think that's a beautiful way to keep things guessing for your opponent, you know, especially when your power shots are so deadly. You know, I think that Moreno can eat a punch better than, you know, most people in the UFC. And, and he, he proved that. The jab was landing very early, probably pound for pound, one of the best jabs in the UFC. And it's just his striking clinic and his, his body of work is just so beautiful in the short time that we've seen Figueroa as champion. So for me, I'm just trying to see where are the areas that, you know, Marino can exploit him. Where did he have success? Well, you know, when you throw with that much power, you tend to get a bit tired. And I think that you saw that in the fight where Marino, a guy who can keep pushing forward, eat punches, Started finding success because of that. Was able to start getting some takedowns. His combos were absolutely on point. I think that's where he was starting to beat Figueroa a little bit. Because Figueroa was actually maybe throwing one to two punches with just everything behind them. Whereas, you know, Brandon Marino was pushing forward with like three, four type punch combos. Maybe eating some on the other end, but that's where we want to see him do a lot better. Funny enough, you know, in that fight, they actually talk about how the head kick for Brandon Marino was landing very early. It almost looked like they were studying quite a bit of tape to notice that when he throws, I mean, the hands come down on that one side to be able to land that kick in a big way. So all of that 
ta like all of the tactics that went into that first fight, the fact that we're gonna get to see it again in terms of chess match, like this is playing on the computer on the highest level now. We're talking about one of the best fights of 2020, now basically kicking off, you know, 2021's halfway point in a big way as the co-main event on one of the bigger title fights we're seeing all year long. So, you know, I, I really want to give Brandon Marino the edge from a heart perspective. I love the guy. I hope he wins. I'm not gonna hide that part. But when you really want to break this down in terms of paths to victory, it's like eat the punches when you need to, but keep those hands up. Avoid any massive opportunities to take big injuries because you're, you know, you're very much in this fight come rounds three to five. I think without the injury in round five, you might have seen him be able to steal a round and maybe take that championship home. I think that Figueroa definitely slows down in those last few rounds where a guy like Moreno who kind of turns it up and keeps that pace and is just such a dog late in fights can really start to take over. So it's really about minimizing that damage for Brandon and then, you know, taking over as, as rounds two to three, you know, kind of end and it's now into the championship rounds. For Figueroa, it's manage the strikes, right? Keep those hands up, manage the output. When you're throwing that hard with that much power, you want to kind of maintain some of that late. I think that he was still able to land on Marino, but, you know, he looked a bit tired. He looked like it was a, a lot easier for Marino to kind of have his way, even with a broken arm you know, taking the fight to the ground, getting those opportune takedowns. For me, that was just the best part of it. Now, if he's not falling for these feints that Figueroa throws so well, this is going to be a great fight to see which guy really deserves to be that undisputed champion. Who knows? Maybe this lines up a, a part three for all we know because of how good these guys have looked. But I'm sure Kai Car France, Pantoja, Brighton Roy will all have something to say about that. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of others that are ready to eat that title uh, in the flyweight division. So I'm, I'm excited for this one. I don't think that th there's a better group of fighters to represent the division anymore. Askar Askarov is another guy I can't wait to get into that title picture. But there's just such a long line, man. And it's such a fun fight because when you go back to December and how good this fight looked... It's just re-watching it and replaying it in your head makes you excited already. So let's get into the lines. You know, I got to lean Davis and Figueroa as the favorite here. I think that in the last fight, you can kind of see the areas where he was able to improve on. And they're actually quite, you know, simple. They're simple areas to get better at. You know, manage your cardio. Don't throw with such crazy, you know, know that you're fighting a guy that can take a punch pretty badly and, and still keep pushing forward. So manage the output. Make sure you're consistent on all three rounds. That's going to help you keep the cardio late. It's going to help you keep him guessing and also make you more effective later in the fight when a guy like Brandon Marito tends to take over. So let's, let's, let's call a spade a spade. Figueroa coming in at that minus 250 as an opener, now sitting between minus 230 and minus 250. Brandon Marino came in as a plus 210 dog. Seems like a lot of these guys that came above that plus 200 area are now getting some money on them to get them down to that plus 180, plus 190 range, but you can still get Marino at a plus 200 if that's a bet you want to make. I gawked at the line the last time a little less this time because I think that you take into consideration the point deduction for Frigorito and you take in, like I just said, those areas that he can improve on to be a better fighter. I think Marino is becoming a better, you know, smarter MMA fighter, not taking as much damage, not being so brawler-like. That's the culmination of both these guys getting to the championship level. And that's pretty much what's going to dictate the winner, right? If Marino is able to keep doing that damage consistently, get those takedowns, make Frito get tired, force him to, you know, throw everything behind these punches and just keep eating them and moving forward, he can still win this fight, man. Now for Figueroa, discipline, cardio management, you know, 
output management, all of that is going to really, really play into how much better he looks in rounds three, four, and five. And that's where I think this line kind of dictates that as well. You know what I love the most about this main event title fight is the difference in people. You know, I feel like Israel represents a very certain type of person and Marvin represents a very certain type of person. You know, I don't want to call him meathead, but like the hothead type, the guy that really is just, you know, really just all about that yelling and screaming and just so aggressive. Whereas Israel is like your typical anime character of just zen. I flow with my moves, uh, everything's a flow, and everything just is poetry in motion. And you know, similar to what we did with the Eric Anders and Darren Stewart fight, you know, we have a body of work to relate to when it comes to both of these guys. Mind you, it wasn't like it was their last fight like the other two, but this is a fight where we know both of these guys got better. We've seen them both do a lot in the octagon since then, but there's certain areas of that fight that stand out quite a lot, right? You wanna talk about Israel's success in the striking early, the head movement, the feints. I mean, he was annoying. Vittori pretty badly. That elbow, you know, I feel like uh, Vittori is the type of guy that just really, you know, he, it's hard for him to hide his emotions. Very difficult to hide his emotions. And I think that comes out in the fights. And unless he's dominating you, the frustration is definitely worn on his face. And the one thing about Izzy is he's the exact opposite. It's just that flowing style works so well against a guy like Vittori. And if you want to look at that fight very much in terms of that split versus unanimous decision, I mean, let's be real. That was only one judge. And if you look at that third round, I mean, this guy only landed two of six takedowns, both of them in the third. And to be honest, it was under three minutes of, of, of control. So I'm really looking back at the, at the stats of that fight and thinking to myself, like, realistically, this should be a unanimous decision, 29-28. Give Vittori the third round, but I do not believe that Israel should have been, you know, docked anything in rounds one and two, which is where he really did put on a pretty solid striking performance. I think he started to eat more strikes as the fight went on, but that first round, till Vittori really found his range as a boxer, man, he was, he was really, you know, seeing that jab and the follow-up so clearly that it was just a lot of that the whole time follow-up punch follow-up kicks like that's how izzy fights those feints pull everybody in it's like hypnotizing right he wants you to even he's not the type to care if you react with a punch he believes in his speed so much that if two feints get you doing something like this he's going to be able to sneak in a shot whether it's a beautiful body kick or an absolute, you know, shattering type of check hook or anything like that, that can really put you on your butt against a guy like Izzy, which is precision over power. That's the difference there. That's what, that's what I believe any person that enjoys fighting or just wants to punch a bag themselves, take notes on that. Instead of punching the bag as hard as humanly possible, try to hit the same spot a hundred times in a row. Try to generate power without swinging your arms like crazy. Generate from your legs. Use those feints from your knees. That's what makes Izzy so scary, right? He can generate those feints from his legs. He can generate those feints from his hands because you are absolutely afraid of what he can do to you both from the legs and from the hands. And so we all know, right? Vittori in his fight against, you know, uh, Kevin Holland, the, the wrestling was there. By no means am I trying to compare the wrestling there, but... It, it's just, you can see the improvement in terms of weight distribution, being able to control the other fighter. I think Vittori really was able to find himself in that fight. You know, 
don't go in there and try to strike with Izzy for the first few rounds. Not only are you gonna get tired, but then you're trying to fight for your life in that third round. You know, it's kind of weird to see him use that as a claim to fame where he was able to get that split decision against the current champion when, to be honest, if you go watch the fight, it really, really does dictate a different, you know, put it this way. If that fight happened in current generation UFC, where striking matters so much, I'm sorry to say, but that, that fight's going Izzy's way unanimously without question. Zero questions there. But I think that, you know, Vittori's ability to mix it up a little bit. I mean, let's talk about the takedowns, right? I thought Izzy even that early in his career was trying his best to move with that takedown. You know, at second, he really was trying to use those hips and, and swing around as much as he possibly could. He still got back to his feet. He did not have to spend much time on his back in terms of being dominated by a wrestler. So, you know, when you consider the improvements on both sides, I'm sorry to say, but Vittoria is still that hulking striker looking for those big, big shots and then tire you out and take you to the ground. Carl Robertson was a great example. Kevin Holland was a great example. It's almost like he wants to test his striking and see how good it is and then implement his game plan. In this case, it's like, just use those one-twos as best as you can. Try to get those leg kicks like you originally did. I mean, Izzy was was definitely checking a bunch of those in the, in the first fight. I'm interested to see how much he can do early in the fight. Because when you look at that last fight, that's pretty much all he's hanging on to, right? That split is is just the second and third rounds being judged very differently. And, you know, even for, for me, I think the two things that really stand out for me for Izzy going into this fight is if he wasn't already feeling like Vittori's one-two, you know, behind that jab was already too slow, I'm very curious to see because both these guys are going to get better. Izzy's definitely becoming a better, better MMA striker with that beautiful head move in the feints. And obviously Marvin Vittori is becoming a better athlete as well for the MMA game. But what's really interesting is, is he going to still be fast enough to keep up with Izzy or is Izzy still gonna be able to see those punches like slow motion you know it really looked like that's how he was seeing them early in that fight and now the biggest the biggest x factor going into this fight despite everything that people want to say about Israel Adesanya the guy's got an 82% takedown defense and that includes fights against Jan Blakowicz, Yoel Romero, Bobby Knuckles aka Robert Whitaker, Kelvin Gaslam, Derek Brunson and Brad Tavares I saw that Brad Tavares fight live thank god my bachelor party back-to-back. -back. DC won that double champ. Anyway, I'm going to bring that up once in a while. You're always going to hear me say it. Get tired of it. I don't care. But think about who he's fought. People are going to keep saying that Vittori's way of winning this fight is wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. In my opinion, he's fought better wrestlers. He's fought really, really good wrestlers. And he still has that 82% takedown clip. He's beaten all those guys except for Jan. So all I'm really getting at here is... In those areas where we can say all these guys have improved and everything's getting better, I'm sorry to say, but the only person we've seen dominate uh, Izzy in terms of wrestling was a weight class heavier than him. So with all of that said, take that in consideration when you're considering, you know, who you want to pick for this fight and who you think's going to win. I mean, I already, you know, as a fan and as a, as a, you know, hopeful pundit in the next few years of this sport i can't see izzy losing this fight so let's take a look at the lines i mean israel opened as a plus or sorry as a minus 235 and he's actually moving up so izzy opening at a minus 235 has now got him to a minus 260 minus 275 area whereas marvin vittori opened as a plus 210 and now you can get him as high as a plus 225 in some places so that really dictates you know people are researching people are seeing that you know what i don't think that that split decision is as, you know, becoming of uh, Vittori as you think. 
you watch the fight, it's a little, there's a big discrepancy there in judging. And I think that's where you're going to see Izzy be like, no, 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 I'm going to dominate this fight and prove that all of that doesn't even matter anymore. And the same can be said for Vittori. It's like, I thought I did enough to win that fight and I'm definitely going to do enough to win the fight this time. Let's see how it all plays out. We've got media coverage for PFL. We've got media coverage for Bellator. We're absolutely going nuts for the fights come this weekend. So keep it locked to Suki MMA. Like, subscribe, hit that bell. Follow me on Instagram for all the picks coming into Saturday. We've got so much planned in the next little bit here. 2021 is going to be a big year for us. So stay tuned. Keep it locked. Peace.